We'll be confessing together the two questions there in Lord's Day 41 concerning the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And here we'll consider what God's will for us is in the seventh commandment. So again, that's page 892. The Ten Commandments here come in the third part of the Catechism, just a reminder, the gratitude section, which highlights how we walk in these commands in gratitude for the Lord who saved us. And so that's the focus as we come to Lord's Day 41 here. Question answer 108. We'll begin there. I'll say the question. Let's say together the answer. Beloved, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. In question 109, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talks, thought, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. We turn now to God's holy word. I'll actually be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Exodus 20, verse 14, again, is the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And just to give a little bit more flesh to this command, we'll consider Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Here in the great Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus gives a little bit more insight into the commands of God. This is what we hear from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. The Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell." If you look there in the same chapter at verse 8, you see this beautiful word of Christ as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Indeed, beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, today there is a lot of confusion about human sexuality. And even for Christians, we could find ourselves perhaps not knowing how to navigate this world that we're living in when it comes to all of the sexual confusion around us. I think as Christians, sometimes there's two extremes that we could fall into that we're tempted to give into. One is to buy into the world and the culture's definition and expression of sexuality, which is obviously a sinful and wrong thing to do. But another bad extreme is that we can not really talk about sexuality in the church. We could perhaps suppress sexual feelings and discussion, and we can maybe even treat them as inherently sinful in God's sight. You know, sexuality can become a bit of a taboo topic in the church. You know, prior to the Reformation, the church generally regarded sex, even within the confines of marriage, as a necessary evil. The Catholic Church gradually began to prohibit uh, sex on certain holy days, so that by the time of Martin Luther, uh, it had grown to 183 days. It was actually the Reformers who helped to recover and restore a biblical view of sexuality. 
According to one scholar, the Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companionship in marriage, affirmed sex was both necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded romantic love. See, Scripture, beloved, doesn't let us fall into either one of those extremes, but Scripture highlights for us both God's goodness and how he made us, even as sexual creatures, but also the distortion of sin and how sin has distorted even this part of who we are in regards to our sexuality. And so we see in God's word, therefore, warnings against certain kinds of sexual behavior because God wants us to express our sexuality for his glory. Now, this is, of course, a very big topic that you could spend a whole sermon series on, and and I'm sure there's many questions that will go unanswered tonight. Uh, But again, today we want to think about this command and how it relates to our sexuality. And we're going to think again, uh, beginning with simply thinking about what this command means, or perhaps we could put it in a more positive light, uh, the goodness of God's design. The goodness of God's design. The first thing we want to say is that our sexuality is a good gift of God. I don't think we say that enough in the church, that our sexuality is a good gift of God. You know, a few years ago when I was pastoring in Canada, I spoke with a 19-year-old girl who was strained from the church, who was steeped in sexual sin. I met her at a coffee shop. And one of the things that she told to me is that growing up, she never received really any teaching um, about this subject growing up. And maybe she wasn't telling the full truth. Uh, But as our bodies change and as we grow up and we start feeling certain things and our bodies go through new hormones, we are asking questions about our sexuality. And we're going to we need to find the answers for those questions in in the right places. Right. Our sexuality, uh, referring to our sexual desires or our capacity to have sexual feelings. Again, it's not a worldly category that we shy away from, but it's a biblical category that we need to understand from Scripture at the appropriate time. We want to first unpack the goodness of how God made us and for how he wants these romantic passions that we have to be fulfilled. The Bible teaches us that God himself created what we call sex. He told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:28, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Pastor David Platt writes in his book Counterculture, "If you have trouble understanding the goodness of enjoying physical intimacy within marriage and maybe associate sexual activity with shame, read the Song of Solomon. It's an entire book of the Bible devoted to romantic love, physical attraction, and sexual desire." And there we read in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15, these words. How delightful is your love, my bride. How much better is our love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk, honey and milk are under your tongue. God created, beloved, sex not only to be procreational, but to be relational and intimate between a husband and between a wife. God created us body and soul. And part of our physical makeup as human beings made by God is that we're sexual creatures. Our bodies were created by God and for God. And so he gives us, therefore, the loving boundaries of how we use our bodies for his glory. This leads to the second thing here. Our sexuality, it's a good gift, but it must be expressed within God's loving boundaries. Now, we could think of our sexual passions 
and compare them with a fire. Right? A fire is useful for many reasons. A fire could keep you warm at night in your home. A fire could be nice around uh, you know, your campsite to keep you warm. You could cook over a fire. A fire could be very useful to you. But if a fire escapes the boundaries, it could become extremely dangerous. And we know that here in California. Well, God gives us his loving boundaries in Scripture. And scriptures teach, beloved, that sexual fulfillment, those fires are to be expressed and experienced within a loving, long, uh, lifelong covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And this is because sexual intimacy is meant to be an expression between two people emotionally, spiritually, and covenantally. That's why the second, the seventh commandment, God tells us to keep our sexual passions within this context, saying to us, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this means in marriage, we are to honor God with those sexual desires. We do this in a positive way. We do this by delighting in the spouse that God has given to us, delighting in the spouse that God has given to us. Proverbs 15, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. One of the ways that we combat devious sexual behavior is by developing intimacy with a spouse that God has given to us. We nurture and, and promote that love emotionally and spiritually and physically. Pastor Tim Keller says that sex, it's like covenant cement, which helps hold marriage together. This is why the Bible requires regular sexual relations. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another. The sexual union helps to cement the couple's total union, right? Again, covenantally and spiritually and emotionally. Although uh, the marriage relationship is earthly, it's a picture uh, of something greater. The union between Christ and his church. And again, that's what brings meet to God's warning when he says don't commit adultery because not only is that a fundamental break to the essence of a marriage relationship right faithfulness but it's an assault on the gospel itself what marriage is pointing to this beautiful union between Christ and his church now when we think of God's loving boundaries we think of them inside marriage but we also think of them outside of marriage right outside of marriage we are to honor God with these sexual passions that we have Again, when I was a pastor in Canada, I counseled a lot of young couples. And I remember one of the common questions when they were dating was, Pastor, you know, how far can we go before we become sexual, you know, sinners of this, breaking this commandment? You know, it's always a question that young people are asking. You know, the scriptural line is that we're not to engage in any kind of activity that would arouse you sexually before marriage. Song of Solomon 8 verse 4, don't awaken love until it's proper time. That's why God in, in the scriptures, he's forbidding premarital sex, which we call fornication. And if you are a person who is experiencing these desires and you're not yet married and you're, and you're feeling these passions in your heart, again, those desires are good. God gave them to you. But they're meant to awaken you and to bring you to the point where you are ready to now prepare for marriage. And you do that, beloved, by preparing to serve others. Learning responsibility, learning how to serve other people, learning how to deny yourself and to sacrifice yourself for another person as you live in an other-oriented way. 
And in this command, God loves us. And he's saying to us, these are my loving boundaries that I've given to you for those sexual passions that you have, which are good, but need to be inside of these safe boundaries so they don't destroy you. Sadly, that's the second thing we have to think about when we think about this command and how we fall short of it. How do we fall short of it? Again, our sexuality is a good gift, but think about this. Sin, it's always a distortion of the good. Sin always distorts the good. And indeed, we confess that our sexuality has been distorted by sin. Throughout the scriptures, even from the very beginning of the pages of the Bible, we see that God's people have been an adulterous people. We've given ourselves throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of humanity, we've given ourselves to false gods for our satisfaction. Can Adam and Eve bought into the lie that if they if they sinned, they would not surely die, but that they would be fulfilled and wise. Israel received the very law of God, God's good commands at Mount Sinai. And what did they do on the very night that they received the law and made the covenant with God? They made a golden calf. They committed spiritual adultery on their wedding night against God. The prophets accuse Israel of their covenant unfaithfulness, again, which the Lord calls spiritual adultery. You can see that in Jeremiah 3, 1 through 10. Because of sin, beloved, even today we live, don't we, in an adulterous culture. We live in a world that celebrates sexual promiscuity in movies, in media, in celebrity culture. Indeed, sex sells products all around us. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We know from God's word, Isaiah 53, all of we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned each one to his own way. And I think sexual sin is so attractive to human beings because think about this apart from a relationship with the lord jesus christ it's one of the greatest intimacies you could find on earth it's a substitute a cheap and wrong substitute but if you don't know christ and you're searching for intimacy and you desire to be fully known and fully loved you're going to go look for that in the cheap substitutes of the world in this side of the fall beloved all of us then have given into this haven't we we've committed adultery in thought in word and in deed. Again, like the previous command that we considered last week of murder, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that this sin of adultery is a matter of the heart. You can do adulterous deeds, but the cause of those things sadly flows from our own fallen hearts. And when you think about big sins like adultery, they always begin smaller, don't they? There's a progression to sin. Consider Psalm 1. Blessed is that man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, sexual sin begins by first, you know, entertaining the way a little bit. Huh, I wonder what that would be like. And then you slowly begin to move in that direction, right? You stand in the way of sinners, and then you sit in the seat of scoffers. You commit an explicit sexual act that is wrong. And great sin, beloved, like sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, always begins small. And God, in this commandment, he wants us, because he loves us, to consider both the great and the small ways we are tempted to fall short of his very good design. Beloved, we commit adultery in God's sight in small ways, in hidden ways. When we fantasize about someone who is not our spouse, when you're a young person, you're fantasizing about a classmate or a coworker. You're flirting with someone who's not your spouse. 
when you're looking at pornography or you're reading a romance novel that's arousing you in the wrong way, when you're dressing in a particular way, whether you're a man or a woman, so that people could look at you sexually, we're all falling short of this when we're doing that. We could add to that list. You know, sometimes I think we don't really give too much weight to those kinds of things. I remember a man jokingly saying to me one time, you know, Pastor, I could look at the menu, but as long as I dine at home, I think I'm okay. Well, what does Jesus say? He says, no, even that lustful intent is adultery in the heart. Beloved, every time we give in to secret lustful sin in our thoughts and words and deeds, it's like we're taking in a little bit of poison. Every time, a little bit of poison that's killing us. It's killing our marriages. It's killing our walk with God. It's killing us spiritually. It's it's destroying us in so many different ways. Proverbs 5, verse 20, Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Sex, beloved, was never meant to be some isolated act between two people who just want to hook up, but it's meant to come in with the total package of a spiritual, emotional, and covenantal union. Sadly, we see in the scriptures that adultery has consequences. Right? Most obvious is King David's story, 2 Samuel 11. And there we see again, don't we, that sexual sin, it's connected with other aspects of our life, right? Other things in our life sometimes could lead us to sexual sin. What was up with David in 2 Samuel 11? Well, he wasn't out at war. He was a king, but he wasn't using his power and his energy to serve other people. He wasn't busy in God's work, right? Sexual sin, doesn't it often happen to us when we're mindlessly scrolling on our computers or on our phones? not being disciplined and hard at work with our energy that God has given to us. We're vulnerable, aren't we, when we're tired, when we're lonely, when we're depressed, when we're angry. We see with David as well, he was on the rooftop. He looked at another man's wife. He saw, right, with his eyes Bathsheba, but he didn't turn his eyes away. Instead, he used his power to get what he wanted. He turned inward to those fleshly cravings and acted upon them. And that's what we do when we give in to sexual sin. And we see in David's story, beloved, there was consequences to those actions, even though God was merciful and forgiving to David. Beloved, sexual sin, don't buy the lie, it always brings consequences. It could destroy a marriage covenant. It could cause you to step down from, from your work or from a ministry position. Sexual sin always brings consequences. And adultery is so grievous in God's sight because marriage is meant to reflect Christ and his church. And when we're giving in to those adulterous affections, we're committing that spiritual adultery that distorts the gospel. We all fall short of this command, myself included. And again, the Bible highlights our unfaithfulness. But thanks be to God, beloved. Thanks be to God that at the heart of the gospel is a faithful God pursuing an unfaithful people. And that's what we consider in this third part. How much we need the Lord Jesus to restore us and then to bring us to holiness. 
How does Jesus fulfill this command? Again, the Bible is a story of God, a faithful God, pursuing an unfaithful people. Yet at the fall, we gave ourselves to false gods and to idolatry. We looked for happiness and pleasure and satisfaction in everything but the God who made us. Even for Israel, he, he called them, what? His bride. You're my bride. You're my beloved. But they too, even after knowing God's good design, went astray. But God is faithful. God is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. The story of Hosea, we see a prophet who's called to marry a prostitute. He's to be an example of God's faithful love to an unfaithful woman. God wants us to see his redeeming love and that our sin, even our adulterous sin, our unfaithfulness to God, does not have the last word in the Bible story. Indeed, Jesus came and he came to do what? He came to seek and to save a holy bride, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would be called his beloved. And when Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago in history, there at Calvary on that hill, he took upon our guilt and he took our shame, even our sexual shame. Jesus died for all of our sexual sins. He was treated at that cross like an adulterer, like a fornicator, like someone who was unholy and defiled. Jesus died for all of our sexual sin, beloved, all of those ungodly cliques, all of those lustful thoughts, all of those secret things that we're ashamed to even share with others. Jesus died for every single one of them. And we see at the cross of Jesus what our sin deserves. We deserve to be openly shamed for what we've done in secret. But instead, the gospel declares to us that the Son of God was publicly condemned in our place. He might remove the guilt of sin and even cover our shame. Sexual sin brings shame, doesn't it? You know what it's like to fall into sexual sin in different ways and the dirtiness that you feel on the inside. Jesus came to even deal with that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The moment you believe in Jesus, he clothes you in his perfect purity and righteousness and holiness so that in God's sight you're not only forgiven of those sins you have committed you are regarded as holy in God's sight the gospel brings not only forgiveness but righteousness a covering for shame yes we are still inwardly even as Christians polluted by sin even sexual sins that we're fighting against by the spirit of God but thanks be to God we're not defined even by that struggle but by the righteousness of God credited to our account by faith. Your brothers and sisters, I'm sure there's things in your life that you're ashamed of, even perhaps sexual sins. God wants us to know, even as we see in David's story, that none of these things are unforgivable sins. None of these things define us if we're in Christ. The promise of God is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1. The gospel declares that we have been bought, body and soul. Paul writes to the church of Corinth these words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Beloved, the church of Corinth was filled with sexual sinners, broken people. A man in Corinth boasted that he had his father's wife. There was sexual deviancy that is pretty much like our culture here today. Paul reminds the church in 1 Corinthians 6 that if they are in Christ, trusting in him, those sins that marked their lives in the past no longer define them because they were what? Washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And didn't our Lord Jesus embody this in his ministry? When Jesus was here on earth, beloved, walking in human flesh, he offered hope and a new start and new life to sexual sinners. He came to the woman at the well who had many husbands in the past, and who was looking to satisfy that deep craving of her heart with everything but God. And he came to her and he offered to her living water. He didn't excuse her sin, did he? He put light on it. But then he offered her true life in him. He did the same for the woman caught in adultery. When others wanted to condemn her, Jesus came and he did not condemn her, but he forgave her. And then he said, what? Go and sin no more. And today, beloved, this is still what Jesus is doing for sexual sinners like you and me. He brings new life to us in the gospel, and then he calls us to go and to live in light of it. Therefore, there is hope for all of those who will confess their sins to God, confess their ways that they have strayed from the Lord, but who come to drink of Jesus, the living water, and to find that intimacy of our souls that we're craving for quenched in him. Finally, beloved, in light of these things, how can we walk in holiness by the power of the gospel? Three things as we conclude. First, perhaps simply but really important, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your identity. Again, Paul says to those in 1 Corinthians 6, although you are battling these sexual sins, if you are a Christian today, then the gospel transcends your feelings about yourself, your body, and your and your battles, and tells you who you truly are. What does God say? He says, again, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. And then Paul says, you're not your own. You've been bought. That's Heidelberg 1, isn't it? You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. Why should you avoid sexual sin? Because you don't belong to yourself anymore. That's the lie of the culture. You're your own creator. You're the one who creates yourself and everything that you feel, right, you follow. No, God says you're not your own. You've been bought by Jesus. You belong to me. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Remember these things. Remember who you are in him. Second, by the power of the gospel, make war against your sexual sins, whatever they might be. Don't coddle them. Don't try to justify them by comparing them with other people. Don't give them space to grow. But starve them. Run away from them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Flee from it. To flee, as we talked about in the catechism, is is to avoid all sexual thinking, 
looking, desiring, touching, speaking, and acting outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Like Joseph in the Old Testament, we're to run away from that temptation when it comes. We're not to put ourselves, beloved, in those spots where we're tempted to fall. Right in front of a computer screen late at night, in that part of the newspaper maybe that evokes bad thoughts. Don't put yourself in those situations. What does Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, be radical in your fight against sin, especially sexual sin. Maybe this means today you delete some apps on your phone. Maybe it means today you resolve to go to bed at the same time with your spouse. Maybe it means that you ask a friend or a pastor or a mentor for some help, for some prayer, for some accountability. Beloved, lust thrives in secrecy. A wise man once said, we're only as sick as our deepest secrets. You know how you struggle. How can you today and this week live in greater purity for the glory of Jesus who bought you? It's humbling, isn't it, beloved, to come into the light? But God wants us to live there because that is where his grace and power meets us. Finally, beloved, not only remember who you are, make war against your sin, but cultivate intimacy with God. You see, you can't just think your way out of sexual sins, but you need a new affection in your heart that will help drive out those old sinful cravings. If those cravings we have for intimacy and satisfaction are satisfied by Christ, then we're better equipped and able to say no to those lesser lesser pleasures that promise us those satisfactions. I like how Pastor John Piper puts it. He says this. He says, The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasure. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the raging fire of holy satisfaction. Again, we need to hear those warnings of Jesus, right? We need to hear that there's consequences to these sins. But we also need to remember the life-giving promises of God that motivate us in holiness. Like Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Beloved bride of the Lord Jesus, the Lord says to us in his word, you shall not commit adultery. God has created us with sexual passions, and he wants us to direct those passions for his glory and for our greatest good. And so today, may we heed the warnings of Scripture, but may we also fix our hearts and remember the great promises of the gospel. Again, we have been bought at a great price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Amen. Let's pray.